If you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to turn in them to Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 15. Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 15. Today we will be considering what we mean when we confess in the Apostles' Creed that Christ rose again from the dead on the third day. So the resurrection of Christ. Matthew 28 is one of the accounts that narrate for us Christ's empty tomb and his resurrection. So Matthew 28, verses 1 through 15. Please pay careful attention for this is God's holy word. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And the story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God stands forever. May he again write this word upon our hearts. Well, as you know, our catechism has three sections, and those three sections are guilt, grace, and gratitude. And which section are we in? A non-adult this time? Yes? Grace, yes. And within this grace section, uh, we are considering the nature of true faith. And so true faith, according to the catechism, has three elements. And what are those three elements? Non-adult, Annabelle? The three elements? Knowledge, ascent, trust. Yes, cat. Knowledge, ascent, trust. We have to know certain things, ascent to them, but then personally trust in them for ourselves. And the content of this faith is expressed in what creed? Lily? Apostles' Creed. And so right now, for the last number of weeks, we've been walking through the Apostles' Creed and what we mean article by article when we confess uh, this creed. We confessed it earlier uh, this morning in our first service. And today we are considering the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection of Christ. Now this, of course, is a very important doctrine, arguably uh, the most important doctrine. The Apostle Paul is very clear that the Christian faith stands or falls on this doctrine. This doctrine, you know, many liberal scholars and theologians as of the last century 
um, especially have thought of the resurrection as merely a metaphor, sort of like a parable that's communicating a timeless truth. And the timeless truth that's communicating is that we need to encounter, uh, uh, we need to engage the trials, tribulations, difficulties of our life with perseverance and make sure we come out the other side stronger than we were before, right? Resurrection, death and resurrection. But in the catechism, in the creed, we're confessing that this is a historical reality. Christ really did leave the tomb as we read from Matthew 28. He was the first human person to have life after death. Well, there's a lot that could be said about the resurrection. We could talk about why we can believe the resurrection without checking our minds at the door. There's a lot of historical reasons why we believe this. We also can talk about the implications it has for us as New Covenant Christians. In fact, that's why we are here today on the Lord's Day. Christ rose on the first day of the week, and thus the Lord's Day, the Sabbath, changes from the seventh day to the first day. So there's a lot that we could reflect upon when it comes to the resurrection. But notice how the catechism frames our consideration on this very important doctrine. What question does it ask? What benefit, right? what benefits do we receive because of the resurrection? Oh, we didn't even read this, did we? Um, so yeah, turn with me in the order of worship. Confessional reading. Uh, question answer 45. So again, this is Lord's Day 17, question answer 45. Uh, I'll read the question if you please respond with the answer. So question 45 asks, how does Christ's resurrection benefit us? First, by his resurrection, he has overcome death so that he might make us share in the righteousness he obtained for us by his death. Second, by his power, we too are already raised to a new life. Third, Christ's resurrection is a sure pledge to us our blessed resurrection. So, draw your attention to the explicit question that we are given here. What benefit do we receive? There's lots of ways in which the authors of this catechism could have framed our discussion on this very important doctrine. But again, it asks us a very pointed question. What benefits do you receive by virtue of Christ's resurrection? Again, this is illustrative of how theology is meant to be conducted in the church. Theology is not primarily a, a means for speculation, but it's a, it's a means to bolster our comfort and assurance. Well, the first question and answer is, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Doctrine is meant to be directly applicable to our lives Monday through Saturday. It's as if the, the, the Heidelberg is asking us, what benefit is it to you on a Tuesday afternoon when this article, this article of Christ rose again from the dead on the third day, flits through your mind? How does that help you on an ordinary Tuesday afternoon when you're needing your cup of afternoon coffee? How does it comfort you? How does it assure you? How does it help you get through your week and your day? That, that's the frame of reference that the catechism is giving us. Boys and girls, how many of you have, have, have ever hit a pinata before? Pinata with candy. What happens when the pinata breaks? Candy goes everywhere, right? And you scramble to pick up the most pieces of candy. 
Well, you can think of the resurrection of Christ as the breaking open of a pinata. And when Christ rose from the dead, all of these benefits are now available to God's people. And the catechism here gives us three specific benefits that we receive because Christ left the tomb on the third day. And these three benefits correlate with our justification, with our sanctification, and with our glorification. They correlate with our justification, our sanctification, and our glorification. So you'll notice that the first benefit that the catechism gives us, or that uh, the resurrection of Christ gives us, is that uh, by Christ's resurrection, he has overcome death so that he make, might make us partakers of the righteousness which he has obtained for us by his death. Catechism is saying that that imputed righteousness of Christ, which we receive in our justification, is directly connected to his resurrection. Now, Paul speaks this way explicitly in Romans chapter 4, verse 25. And in, in our consideration of these, we're going to be going through a number of different verses uh, because the catechism is laying out this answer in a very systematic way. So it's not just going to one specific passage, but a number of passages. So we'll be considering a number of verses. But in Romans chapter 425, this is the context of Paul's discussion of justification by faith. He, he, he very systematically lays out this doctrine, Romans 3, Romans 4, and Romans 5. And he, as he's talking about justification by faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, says that this is not a new way of salvation. David was saved the same way that we are saved. David himself confessed, blessed is the one uh, whose sins are forgiven, against whom the Lord does not impute their transgressions. David taught justification by faith. Uh, then he goes to Abraham as the, one of the chief examples of, of justification by faith. And so in Romans chapter 4, verses 23 through 24, listen to what the Apostle Paul says. And here he's quoting, alluding to Genesis chapter 15. And Paul says, but the words in Genesis 15, it was counted to him, that is to say it was counted to Abraham. These words were not written for Abraham's sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So Paul is saying, that that narrative in Genesis 15 where Abraham believes God and his belief grants him the righteousness of God, that is a very ancient narrative that has direct implication for us today because we are called to the same type of faith and are promised the same type of righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, one plan of salvation. So what is justification? Well, think of our call to worship earlier uh, this morning. Psalm 24, the psalmist says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. So to be in the presence of God, God requires us to have clean hands and a pure heart. A holy disposition, that is to say, a pure root and good fruit. That's what God requires. Now our problem is not, it's not just that we can't uh, produce good fruit. We can only sin. As those who are in Adam, that's all we can do. We can only sin. Everything's tainted with sin. And so what Jesus does, he comes to wipe away our sin, 
to forgive our debt, to bear God's wrath for the sins in which we've committed, but then he also comes to live an active life of obedience to God's law and grant to us his clean hands and a pure heart. So he deals with these two problems that we have. We have a debt and we need to be wealthy. We have unclean hands, we have impure hearts, and he deals with that. He, he rids us of the dirt and the filth of our sin, but then he also grants to us his clean heart, his clean hands and a pure heart. That's justification. Now, Paul here says in Romans 4.25 that Christ was raised, raised for your justification. Now, oftentimes when we think about justification, our minds go to the cross where Christ bore the wrath of God for our sins. As we considered last week, he, in some sense, descended into hell in that he bore God's wrath. He bore hell for you and for me. Our minds, when we think about justification, go to the cross or they think about his uh, Christ's active life of obedience to the law of God, those times in which he, instead of choosing vice, lived a virtuous life in obedience to the will of his father. We think of his life, we think of his death. But I don't know if about you, but most of us don't often think about the resurrection in the context of justification. It's not always immediately obvious how his resurrection correlates to our justification. But this is the first benefit that the catechism gives us. The resurrection is immensely important to this doctrine. Now, Christ's resurrection was in some sense his justification, his vindication before the Father. Christ's resurrection was proof that Jesus was who he said he was and that he did what he said he would do. Romans chapter 1, verse 4, Paul says that Christ was declared to be the Son of God in power according to his resurrection from the dead. Christ was declared to be the Son of God in power, meaning the resurrection was the Father accepting the Son's work of redemption and saying, you really did live a perfect life. You really did offer a sacrifice that was sufficient for the forgiveness of sins of my people. I mean, there were thousands of people who died in Roman crosses in the ancient world. There's been at least that many, if not more, people throughout history who claimed outrageous things, claimed to be uh, a deity, claimed to be the son, a son of, of a god or of the gods. What separates Jesus from all of these other thousands of people who died a similar death and claimed similarly outrageous things? The main difference is that those people are still in the grave, and Christ is not. He rose again from the dead. He conquered death and hell. He was the first human being to experience life, bodily life, after the grave. And so, when it comes to our justification, how can we know that a Jewish man's death in the first century has any bearing upon us today? Christ's resurrection. Because Christ's resurrection proves that he was the mediator between God and man. That he was fully God, fully man, who was able to make a full atonement for the sins of God's people. And so, when we are living our Christian lives and we struggle with assurance, we struggle to really believe that we are forgiven when we feel stained with the guilt of our own sin, we can be assured because of Christ's resurrection 
that the death of a Jewish man 2,000 years ago has bearing upon me today. When we struggle to really believe that we are righteous, when we feel very unrighteous and unholy, when we have our conscience, which is testimony of the fact that God's law is written upon our hearts, when that conscience is accusing us that we've grievously, grievously sinned against all of God's commandments and never kept any of them, the basis of our assurance is in the resurrection, where we know that Christ was perfectly righteous for me, that his righteousness is imputed to me, even though I continue to go on sinning. Christ's resurrection, then, is the anchor for our assurance, the anchor for our comfort, where we can know that he lived and died for me. He lived and died for you. Paul says that this message of the gospel was utterly foolish to the Greeks of, of the first century, the educated of the first century. And it is foolish from an objective standpoint, from the framework of the world, to believe that a Jewish man's life and death has some implication upon you today before the God of the universe, that his death was your death, that his life is credited vicariously to you. That, that's outrageous. It's foolish. And the reason why we can believe that without checking our minds at the door is because of the resurrection, this objective historical reality that, stand, that stands outside of everybody's subjective experience that testifies that Jesus was unique. He was the Messiah. He was the God-man who alone was able to live and die for all of God's people. So the doctrine of justification very much hangs or falls with the doctrine of the resurrection. Now, what's the second benefit that the catechism gives us? New life. Right. Remember the first question and answer? That we belong, our only comfort in life and in death is that we belong body and soul, life and in death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. This is referring to our union with Christ. We're united body and soul to Christ. And because we belong body and soul to Christ, his resurrection has some profound implications upon upon our life. So we share in his resurrection. We share in his resurrection. Now, in this age, it's only our inner man that shares in his resurrection. But we're looking forward to the day when Christ returns where our outer man will share in Christ's resurrection. So the catechism says that, that uh, the resurrection grants us this new life. Romans chapter 8, verse 11 Paul says that if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. What Paul's saying there is that the same spirit who raised Christ from the dead is the spirit who gives you new life. We oftentimes refer to this reality as regeneration or being born again. And then after that, our ongoing progressive sanctification where the spirit is renewing our inner self. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that we all were once dead, but God made us alive. But God made us alive through the same spirit that gave new life to Christ in the tomb. 
Or 2 Corinthians 4, 16, Paul says that though our outer man is wasting away, our inner man is being renewed day by day. So in this age, our bodies do not taste of Christ's resurrection. Our bodies are not redeemed in this age. Our outer man is wasting away, and we all, to some extent, feel the effects of that. It's our inner man that shares in Christ's resurrection through the Spirit. So I'd like to just briefly reflect upon how this new life within us continues to uh, be developed, how the Lord grows this inner man within us. So think, think for a moment about how God cares for our physical bodies, our physical lives. God indeed is the one who cares for our physical bodies and our physical lives, but he uses means. He uses food. He uses, we need food, water, shelter, sleep, and the labor of many, many people to provide these things for us. We can't just expect to, to sit on a chair and expect God to magically sustain us. He uses means, and those means are from God. That's why Martin Luther said that God hides himself behind the face of the farmer, the milkmaid, the baker. These are God's ways to provide for his people. Well, in a similar way, the Spirit is the one who not only creates this new life within us, but continues to sustain and grow this new life within us. But the Spirit uses means to do so. What are those means? What means does the Spirit use to grow our spiritual life? The word, yeah, the word, primarily in the sacraments, especially in the Lord's Day. This is the means the Lord uses. We sometimes refer to the means of grace, the means by which we grow in grace. And so, boys and girls, one way you can think of Sundays at is, uh, this is like Thanksgiving dinner. Every Sunday, however, we come on Sundays, not primarily to feast physically, but to feast spiritually. Sundays are a day in which we are called to be spiritually fed. The Lord's Supper is a meal, but it's a meal not to quench and satisfy our physical hunger and thirst. It's a meal to satisfy and quench our spiritual hunger and thirst our inner man, for that new life that's been created within us. Now, boys and girls, when you sit down for dinner at night, does the food just magis- magically go from your plate into your mouth? No, right? You need a fork. You need to pick up the fork and bring the food to your mouth. And so, too, when you come to church and the spiritual banquet and feast is spread out before you, you are called to take up your spiritual fork and feast. And the way in which you take up your spiritual fork is by listening and and paying attention and asking your parents questions about things that you have heard uh, during the church service at home. That's how you spiritually feed upon the word every Sunday. And so Christ's resurrection is what grants us this new life, and then the Spirit continues to grow this new life through his word through his sacraments, and we are called then to feast, to be fed uh, in the context of the church uh, through the Spirit's means. Well, what's the last benefit that we receive by virtue of Christ's resurrection? Pledge of what? Our resurrection. Bodily resurrection. Right. So the first benefit is our justification. Second benefit is our sanctification, new birth, and that ongoing transformation of our inner man, and then 
The last benefit is our glorification, our bodily resurrection. Paul says again that our outer man in this age is wasting away, our inner man is being transformed, but we're looking forward to a day in which that outer man will be transformed. Paul says in Philippians 3 that, that we will one day have bodies that resemble the bodies of our Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul speaks about Christ's resurrection as the first fruits of our resurrection. Now, in ancient Israel, they were called to offer up the first of their harvest as a first fruit to God. And this was a symbolic act. It was symbolic of the fact that all of the harvest ultimately belonged to God. And so, too, Christ as our first fruits means that his resurrection guarantees our resurrection. His resurrection guarantees our resurrection. I know I've shared this before, but uh, one illustration I heard um, a while ago by another pastor is the idea of a train, right? Wherever that first car goes, that last car will inevitably go. It just takes time because we're connected to Christ. We belong to Christ, body and soul, life and in death. And therefore, we can have full confidence that what has happened to him will necessarily happen to us. Christ's resurrection is the first fruits of our bodily resurrection. Remember Jesus' words in John 6, that he came to do the will of his Father, and the will of his Father is that he would lose none of the Father's people, but raise them up on the last day. Raise them up on the last day. Jesus comes not just to forgive our sins, not just to transform us inwardly. He comes to make sure that all of his people will persevere to that last day and be given new bodies. That's the promise of the gospel. So Christ's resurrection has profound benefits for us. Guarantees our justification, our sanctification, and our future bodily resurrection and glorification. So again, remember that this, like the other articles we've been considering, is in the context of true faith. These are the things that we need to know. We need to know the resurrection. We need to assent to it. But we also need to personally trust that Christ rose from the dead for you, that he rose from the dead for me, so that you and I would have an imputed righteousness to stand before a holy God, clean hands and a pure heart. We have to trust that we have been given new life through the Spirit. And though it seems ordinary, though it seems slow, though oftentimes it feels like we're going two steps forward, one step back, or one step forward, two steps back, the Spirit is doing something within us through these ordinary means of grace. And lastly, we are called to have a sure and confident hope and expectation that we are looking forward to a new creation, a new creation in which we will have bodies that resemble the body of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.